Uh, Exodus 20. We're going to go through the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20. First commandment is, you, you, shall, you shall have no other gods before me, says the Lord. Everyone do this. You shall have no other gods before me, says the Lord. What's the second one? No, no graven images. So take the second finger like it's bowing down. No graven images. And then the third one is, what's it say? Verse 7. Yeah, you don't take the Lord, the Lord's name in vain. So take your three fingers and put them over your mouth. So we got those three down, right? Each week we're going to learn it. So no other gods before me, right? No graven images. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Got it? All right. We'll go further with it. Uh, let me begin with the entirety of the text and take us down to verse 7. Uh, verse, uh, Exodus 20, verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. So he declares himself to be the Lord, and then he, he tells us how we're to worship him. He says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. For you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. And then he gives what Dennis Prager says is the greatest, the, the most important commandment. And, I, and I'll explain why he says that. I don't necessarily agree with him, but it's pretty significant. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So let's pray and ask the Lord for guidance. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word. And as we take a look at this third commandment, Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd minister to us and align us with your will and your purposes. We know we're not saved by the observation of the law. We're saved by grace through faith. But we know that the observation of the law is the opportunity to live the Christian life in such a way that would honor you. And so we see this commandment, Lord, and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would show us how to honor it, to fulfill it, and to bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, like the first two commandments that we read, uh, this one begins with a very strong negative. In a sense, it would read, absolutely do not do what follows. And that's that's the way to look at this this third commandment. You shall not, and the idea of not is absolutely do not do what follows. And the word take, take the Lord's name in vain. The word take means to lift or to carry or to take up or to bear and raise. So you're carrying it. Do not, whatever you do, do not carry the Lord's name in vain. And the idea of vain is is a empty, useless, nothingness, wasted with a worthless purpose. Um and, and then when it uses the concept of name, it means more than just a name. You know that I've, I've often used Ecclesiastes 7.1, that a, pre, a good name is like a precious fragrance, better is a day of a man's death than the day of his birth. And Solomon is saying, you don't know the character of someone until they've died, because then you know how they've lived. And that is when you realize that better is a day of a man's death than the day of his birth, because we're all born with a name, but we don't know if it's a precious fragrance or a stench until the end of our life, depending on how we lived, Right? So when you say the name Ted Bundy, it sends shivers down your spine. Adolf Hitler, uh, you know Jezebel, Judas. Nobody names their kids these. And if you're named one of those, I'm sorry. Uh, but you, you don't. You do, these names have no significance, no substance. They are a reflection of evil because of the way those individuals have lived. So when the scripture says you shouldn't take, you, you do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, it represents the entire reputation of God. And um, the, the name stands for his nature. It, sta it stands for his character. It stands for everything that you can imagine. And, and you first get to know someone by asking them what? Yeah, what's your name? And, and you want to remember that because you're going to associate that name with that person, with their actions, with their character, with their nature, with the way they operate, with the context and how they live their life. And you're going to know that's a name I want to avoid or that's a name I want to spend more time with. But it all begins with an introduction, just like when Jacob wrestled God, he said, what's your name, right? And he said, my, my name is Jacob. He says, rightfully so, but your name will now be Israel. Jacob means heel catcher, supplanter, deceiver, and God changed his name and gave him a new name, which means governed by God or one governed by God. 
So you don't carry or lift or take up or bear or raise the name, the character, the nature of God in vain, emptiness, useless, nothingness, wasted, worthless purpose. You don't do that at all. And the third commandment, fascinatingly enough, that says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless. And, and the idea of guiltless is, is even deeper. It means that, that God is, is, is not going to cause you to be clean. To, to be guiltless means to be laid bare, to be clean. Uh, you, you won't get cleanliness if this is the way you operate your life. Um, he, he wants you to know he is completely serious about his name completely serious about his name, and he doesn't, he doesn't take it lightly. When we use it in a casual or careless way, uh, we're basically saying, God, your name is worth nothing in my estimation. And, and oftentimes you'll hear people pray, and, and they use vain repetition, and the Lord says, stay away from that. And, and some of you pray this way, and, and I, I believe with all sincerity that it's innocent. I don't think it's capricious, but, but I want you to consider something. And I, you know, I've been doing ministry for a long time, and I've, I've been around people, and I'll tell you what, if this is the way you pray, I'd rather you pray that way than not pray at all. But if tonight's message reflects to you how important it is to understand what you're doing and you change, it will make your prayers even more effective. But think about this. What kind of a conversation would it be if, if I'm talking to Chuck and I say to Chuck, hey, Chuck, uh, I was wondering, Chuck, if uh, Chuck, we could uh, Chuck um, go Chuck to um, you know Chuck the the store, Chuck, and uh, maybe Chuck we could buy Chuck some. Um, do you see what I'm doing? Some people when they pray they use Lord in every fourth word, wanting to extend honor to him. I get that, but imagine having a conversation like that where it's very distracting. Lord, I just, Lord, I, I, Lord God, Lord God, Lord Jesus, Lord, 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 and on and on and on and on. It's a conversation where there's a respect for it. And how does the beginning of the prayer of the Lord's Prayer begin? Who art in heaven, be thy, okay. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. Nowhere in there going, Lord, thy will be done, Lord, on earth as it is in heaven, Lord, you know. We hallow your name. Our life reflects your character. Our life reflects who you are. We don't want to use it in, in, in vain or, or in our estimation that it reflects nothing. And oftentimes we're trivial about it. I, I, there was a, a, a span, and it might still be going on, where I was watching all these youth pastors who'd been highly influenced by a number of what I call seeker-sensitive churches, where they're almost embarrassed to use the name of God. And you can watch them. They go, God... The way they say, God, you know, you know, God, it's almost like they're apologetic to say his name. And listen to some preachers, God, just, just, just don't want to even get that out because it's going to insult some people. And God, maybe you don't know that. I was watching it. I, um, Mark 7, 6 uh, deals with Isaiah, a prophesied. He said, you hypocrites. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You can invoke the name of God and your heart isn't attached to it. That is a violation of the third commandment. Yes? Have you ever heard anyone apologize and you know that they're saying it with their mouth, but you can see by their actions they don't mean a word of it? Anybody? If you have children that have to apologize to each other, you've seen this. Yeah? Yeah, I'm I'm sorry. Sure you are. Let's try that again. I'm sorry. Let's try that again. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Let's try it again. Their lips are moving, but their heart isn't engaged. It doesn't match the condition. Uh, there's a story I like this. Uh, reading a story about Alexander the Great, the man who conquered most of the known world by the time he was 30. And uh, a soldier deserted his battle post, and he was brought to Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great said, what's your name? He said, Alexander. At which point he said, you have three choices. Fight, get out of the army, or change your name. And what he was basically saying is, I'm not going to have you associated with me if you're not going to fight. And um, it's almost like Christian means little Christ, and it's almost like we, 
we, we dare to slap our name uh, onto the life of Jesus when our life doesn't reflect anything of his. That is a violation of the third commandment. It's a violation of the third commandment. All the things that have been done in the name of God. Think about that. All the things that have been done in the name of God. Titus 1.16, they claim to know God, but they're, uh, by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for doing anything God, uh, anything good. They're, they're, they're prone to be pretenders. We walk around professing Christ, but our actions, our lives, are far from the proclamation of the name. Uh, I, was, I was taking a look at this, and I came across this. This was uh, August 3rd, 1776. And uh, this was uh, a proclamation by General Washington to the troops. So the 4th of July had already occurred. They're at war with Great Britain. Uh, He realizes the ominous situation that they're battling the greatest army on the face of the earth. The Continental Army is a ragtag group of folks. And on August 3rd, he wrote this because he was greatly concerned. The general is sorry to be informed that the foolish and wicked practice of profane cursing and swearing, a vice hitherto little known in our American army, is growing into fashion. He hopes that the officers will, by example as well as influence, endeavor to check it, and that both they and the men will reflect that we can little hope of the blessings of heaven on our army if we insult it by our impiety and folly. Added to this, it is a vice so mean and low without any temptation that every man of sense and character detests and despises it. Could you imagine if today's aren't military invoke this, that you don't cuss at one another, you don't take the name? And how many people, why is this that somebody stubs their toe and this is what happens at the workplace? Jesus Christ. Why don't they, why don't they say, oh, Buddha or oh, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh? Why is it always Jesus Christ? Jesus H. Christ. I didn't know he had a middle name. I'm not sure what the H is. But this is, this, this is General Washington realizing we have no hope of winning anything if we're not right with God and not right with each other. And one of the reasons why the Lord says, you shall not take my name in vain, is he also honors the name of others. He says, speak kindly to one another, tenderhearted, be compassionate, when you attack somebody, and the sixth commandment says, I shall not commit murder, but I say to you, if you say to your brother, Raka or fool, you're in danger of the fires of hell. And I've covered this multiple times that the idea with the sixth commandment, thou shall not murder, is you don't need a gun to kill somebody. Your words will do just fine. You say to your child, you're ugly, you're stupid, we hate you, we wish you were never born. You don't need a gun to kill that child, right? Right? And so the Lord commands that we speak to one another as we speak to him. Others are created in the image of God. And to think that your political ideology and, and your ability to be right gives you the right to be cruel to those in an opposition is wholly unfair and wrong in accordance with what God declares. Whether you like the president or despise the president, you don't speak poorly of the president. One of the things last night at our planning session meeting with the council, five and a half hours I was at this meeting. Sometimes I wonder why I ran for office. Five and a half hours we were in this meeting. And in the five and a half hours, at the very end of the meeting, we put up the seven requirements of council members, how we're to, to work with each other. And we're not allowed to, to be derogatory or speak ill of one another. We're to be respectful. We're imploring into the, into the civic arena civility to be kind to one another, to set that stage for the rest of the community. One of the reasons why when you approach the the dais to speak to the council members, you cannot speak to a staff member. You can speak to the council, not as individuals, but as a whole, and you're to be respectful. First of all, you state that you're a citizen of the community, where you live, you greet the council, and then you proceed. Why is that? Is it because I deserve the honor and the respect? No, the office does. If we degrade the office, we degrade the community. In military, you respect the rank, not necessarily the person, but the two are synonymous. And you got to figure out you got to figure out how you can honor that person, even though you struggle with them. You can always be civil, even though you disagree. You can always be civil, even though there's ideological differences. There's never a reason to attack the character of another human being ever. You got that? Hello, I know it's Wednesday, but are you with me? Uh. We can have a cold spirit and a hard heart towards God, and we can live in conflict with other Christians and, and fail to follow biblical principles of peacemaking and, res, and, and, and an attempt to resolve our interpersonal conflicts. 
that, that, is, that is a violation of the third commandment. God wants us to dwell together in unity. We have to work through this. You can't despise another human being and be unforgiving and declare yourself to be in right standing with God. That is a violation of the third commandment. You're smacking the name of the Lord onto yourself while you fail to reflect his nature. That's a violation of the third commandment. We don't give our God the, the time, treasures, and talents that, he, that, that he's worthy of. We're in violation of the third commandment. When we allow a root of bitterness towards God and others, it's a violation of the third commandment. We, we've been created the image of God. We're to work together in relation to this. And this, it, it's a violation of the third commandment when you break your marriage vows. It's a violation of the third commandment when you, you uh, use the name of the Lord without meaning something by it. You know? How many times do we do OMG on a text? That's a violation of the third commandment. OMG. Gosh. Oh, geez. Look it up. You know what it means. Um, Merriam-Webster talks about outright blasphemy. He offers this definition. He says, the act of insulting or showing contempt or lack of reverence for God. Isaiah 52.5 says, and all day long my name is constantly blasphemed. And you don't even have to say anything to blaspheme the name of God. Just operate in such a way by slapping his name on your life that doesn't reflect his character or his nature. It's a violation of the third commandment. Now, these are ways that our lips can offend people. Here's, here's another one, common cursing. When we tell someone to go to hell, we're sending them to a place that they'll never get out of. And when we say, uh, uh, we're asking God, God, you, when we say God, you, we're asking God to sentence someone to eternity or hell. God, you send them to hell. That's not in his nature. God would want that none would perish, but that all would be saved. We're not the, the judge jury in that. There's one judge of mankind, that's God. Who are we to judge another man's servant? Why would we ever want to call down divine damnation on anyone? I wouldn't wish hell on my worst enemy. Why would we invoke that? It's a violation of the third commandment. How about this one? This was my family growing up. Our father, our, uh, no, sit thou with us, a silent guest, our friend and scene who we love best, and by thy presence make us feel through happiness throughout this meal. Amen. I had no idea what that meant, but we would, it, it, the quicker we could recite that, the faster we'd eat. And I would, I could do one of those car commercials at the end. Bing! I can get that thing out and get my fork in that food and just have that in my gullet, and I'm good to go. Memorize table prayers, in a sense, is a violation of the third commandment because there's, there's, there's no heart attached to the words. Um, even reciting the Lord's Prayer. I remember Pastor Marty, when we were going to Israel and, um, and they, they needed a, a tenth person for a minion, uh, these Orthodox Jews were gathering and Marty looked Orthodox because he is, and they, they needed a tenth for their minion to do their prayers. And Marty said, I'm, I'm a Messianic Jew. I've come to Christ. They go, do you know the prayers? Yeah, well, come and join us. So Marty gets over there, and that's the last person they should have invited because Marty goes on to explain to them what they're mumbling. He says, slow down. You've got to understand what the words mean. And it was really powerful and profound, but they're just reciting, and they're babbling like pagans, in a sense, is what the Lord points out in Matthew 6. It's not a filler for your prayers. God, we just, God, I just, God, would you just, God, I just, just what? Concentrate on who you're speaking to. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And you begin with his kingdom come, his will be done on earth. As God, I just ask that you would do for me what it is I want. That's a scary prayer. Be careful. Uh, another way that you can violate the third commandment with your lips, uh, careless conversation. Uh, some of us aren't technically swearing or cussing, but we don't think anything of adding God's name to our conversation. Um, you, 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 you take something like shoes, you know, Air Jordans, and, and you ascribe, these, these are like God-breathed shoes. These, these are these are these are shoes meant for heaven. Ah, it's something stupid like that. You just don't invoke that. Um, you, you sing songs. 
you know, and a catchy tune and you're really moved by it and you're singing it. And you just, you just hear that, that it is violating the third commandment in every stanza of the song. When you gossip about other Christians, you're in violation of the third commandment. Gossip is what you would, you would say to someone's face that you wouldn't say behind their back. And, and slander is what you'd, you'd say, behind, well, let's see. No, gossip is what you'd say behind their back that you wouldn't say to their face. And slander is what you'd say to their face that you wouldn't say behind their back. And, and, um, and the Lord, you know, it's like, I really like that person, but in that disassociative conjunctive, and then you go on to tell them what you really think, but you wouldn't say that to their face. Um, here's one violation of the third commandment. When you bless someone after they sneeze, I, I like it when someone sneezes and, and it's, it's a wives tale that the, you know, you're casting out a demon. Oh God bless you. And then it's a neat way to kind of invoke that. And, and if your heart is, I really do want to bless you. I, I want God to bless you. But why are you saying God bless you when they sneeze? When their heart stops or something? What's going on? Why are you saying that? Examine why you're saying what you're saying. You're slapping God's name on, on an action. Make sure that it's relevant with the third commandment. Giving God credit, uh, giving God credit for our own ideas while... You know, we don't, we don't discount that God guides his people and reveals things to us. We need to be careful about declaring definitely God told me. I, I, I struggle with that. People come up to me and tell me, you know, the Lord told me. He, has, he told me something for you. Okay, I, I understand that there's the gift of prophecy, the gift of exhortation. I understand there's those gifts. But I'll tell you what, you're wrong. I'm going to stone you. No, I'm kidding. I won't do that. You know, how about this one? A man comes up to a woman and said, God told me I'm supposed to marry you. Ladies, first of all, come get me and I'll kick the guy out of the church. All right? I will. Secondly, I would look at him and say, well, he didn't tell me that. And in the meantime, stay away from me. That's exactly what my response would be. Do not invoke the name of God for your will upon my life. When he lets me know, I'll let you know. In the meantime, you're creepy. You have my permission. Exercise it. Can I get an amen? amen. Even if you disagree. You know, it, that just doesn't work. It doesn't work. Um, avoid irreverent titles for God. Um, the big guy, man in the sky, man upstairs. Yeah? Um, divine guidance? Uh, we can do questions at the end, but let's do it now. What, what the heck? What, what? That's that's similar to what the hell. So I'm really in trouble with that. Yes. Yeah, I I I thank the Lord that our paths crossed. I think that's fair because He orders our steps, right? You know, I prayed that God would order my steps today, and I ran into you. I think that's fair. But the idea is examine it. Really, why am I saying what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Consider these things. Uh, I covered this earlier, the, the shortcuts and abbreviations, OMG, oh my God. And you text those things. Um, and you do it in Facebook and a number of other things. I, I, just, I just don't think that that's good, especially for Christians to throw that out. Um, I already covered substitute swearing like heck, geez, golly. We know what those mean. Um, Christian cliches that you overuse, violation of third commandment. Praise the Lord. Now there's times where it's a, that's a great line. Praise the Lord. But, but you've met those folks that it's like every sentence. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I just want to say, I, I get irritated because I just don't... There, there's a part of me that, you know, how about this one? I'm praying for you when you really aren't. Violation of the third commandment. Don't do it. I'm, I'm praying for you. And, and just don't do it. If you haven't prayed for me, you don't intend to pray for me. What I do is I'll pray for him before I come up to him. I've been praying for you. And that's legit. Amen. If someone says, would you pray for me? I, to the best of my ability, I usually try to pray for him right there. And that always helps. 
And then as the Lord reminds me in my morning devotion to pray for him, then I, I pray for him. If they say, would you put me on your prayer list? I try to the best of my ability. I say, I'll try to remember. And can you send me a text? Can you send me an email? And that'll help too. Here's a couple of verses, and I'm going to show you some slides in just a moment. First Chronicles 16, 28, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Um, Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. I say the name of Jesus is pretty powerful, right? Demons flee at the name, amen? Romans 10.13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a powerful name. Philippians 2.9 and 11, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Um, our mouth reflects our heart. From the overflow of a man's heart comes his words, the scripture says. One of the great things in the 1904 Welsh revival was the number of bankruptcies that occurred after the revival in, in Wales because all the bars shut down. We got the barbershop quartet from police officers who didn't have anyone to arrest and they didn't have anything to do, so they started singing in churches. The, the, the police officers did, and they had a, a quartet because they had baritone and, you know, the different, I don't know, music. But that's where barbershop quartets came was the, Wales, the Welsh revival. The other thing is mining was big in Wales, and all the mines shut down because the pack animals wouldn't operate without expletives. The animals were so familiar with people cussing at them when they beat these animals that they were starting to speak to them. Come on, Bessie, let's go, sweetie. You know, and they had to retrain all the pack animals because nobody was cussing anymore. That is a complete transformation of a culture. And that's the power of revival. Uh, I, I want to share a couple things and then I'll get to the slides. Uh, the first one, what does it mean to carry or misuse God's name? And this is where we are in our culture today. It, it, it simply means to commit evil in God's name. This is one of the reasons why many believe this to be one of the most profound commandments, because it has the great, greatest propensity to destroy uh, God's presence on the earth when we slap his name on evil actions. Um, this is going to hurt you more than it's, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. You got an abusive dad, I strongly disagree with that. And and the scar that that puts on a child is they are just going to town on them with a rod. And 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 this is the Lord. The, he, God disciplines those he loves. And that is instilling in that child, and you, you're putting God's name, that is a violation of the third commandment. Be careful. This is almost an unpardonable sin that'll, that'll be just infused into the psyche of that child. Early on with Catholic education, I've run into a number of folks, they would whack your hand with the ruler. And the people that survived Catholic education are some of the most atheistic, angry people. Because the third commandment was violated to instill in them a, a, an education. I'm not just saying Catholic church. I, I've seen it in Protestant education as well. By a violation of the third commandment, slapping Christian on something that has nothing to do with God, right? The great war to end all wars, World War I, we really believe God was leading us into this, and it was just an absolute massacre. And we, we were used to free Europe, and, but it was a, a miserable fight. And, and what was perpetrated, everybody felt that their cause was right. And Woodrow Wilson graduated from Princeton. He, was, he, he, he had a, a love for the Lord, very liberal in his theology, but he really believed this was an instrument and an action of God. And, and it wiped out America to the point where we became isolationists up until the, the, the 40s because we had participated in a war that had devastated our population. And in addition, we had the great influenza that was spread through all the troops, and a great portion of our population died as a result of that war. And everyone was disillusioned. And the last thing we want to do is get in another war in Europe. And we're watching as the Nazis are taking over everything, and the last vestige holding on is England. And we had the Lend-Lease program with Roosevelt, but we were not going to engage in that war. Anyone who... who presented themselves as engaging, they shut him down. There's no way we're going to vote for that guy. Roosevelt even ran on staying out of the war. And then Pearl Harbor was bombed. And the next day we declared war both on Germany and on Japan and Germany. 
but, but that it affected the psyche of America. And in this cause, they, when they attacked us, it was almost as though God said, you're free. This is a violation of, of your sovereign land. You have now the ability to engage. It's the one war that in history we can look back on and say that was, le- <laughs> that was legitimate. Uh, the Civil War. You look at the, the faith of Stonewall Jackson or, or you look at the faith of, of Robert E. Lee. They were both godly people. Uh, Stonewall Jackson was a Sunday school teacher. He was a Presbyterian. He was de- devout and faithful. And they both believed, as you read their, their writings, they both believed that the hand of God was on this war and that they would lose because they had seen that they were on the wrong side of it in the sense that this slavery issue was... And, and there, wasn't, there hasn't been, and, and if you study the annals of, of military history, there hasn't been a leader more capable and, and a statistician uh, like Robert E. Lee. He did so much with so little for so long that people marvel at his ability to keep the Army of Northern Virginia going and stave off the Union forces. It outnumbered them tremendously. And he did the best he could, but they realized there's, there's no way to win this war. And you contrast that with, with George Washington, who sends this missive out in August of 1776 saying, no member of our military is going to take the name of the Lord in vain or cuss at one another. This is unacceptable if we expect to receive the blessings of God. Unless God is for us, we labor in vain. We're, we're, just, we're not going to accomplish this. Um, this author writes uh, that, that this idea of, of committing evil in God's name According to the third commandment, the Lord will not hold him guiltless. He, God will not forgive this. This is going to have adverse effects for generations to come. And this author says, why won't God forgive this? He points it out. An irreligious person commits evil. It doesn't bring God and religion into disrepute. But when a religious person commits evil in God's name, he destroys the greatest hope for goodness on the earth. Belief in a God who demands goodness and who morally judges people. So when you have a parent that says out of one side of their mouth, praise the Lord, and out of the other side of their mouth, they're committing adultery or they're an alcoholic or they're beating their kids, they are instilling in that child the ineffectiveness of God's presence in their life. And they're attributing that to God. That is a great evil, and that will visit the culture and destroy the culture. Um, he goes on to write, the Nazis and communists were hor- horrifically cruel mass murderers, but their evils only sullied their own names, not the name of God. But when religious people commit evil, especially in God's name, they are not only committing evil, they are doing terrible damage to the name of our God. Here's what's interesting. You go to Israel, they still to this day, 2017, and we're bringing a contingency of evangelicals that believe that Israel is in the last days. We want to come and bless them. We believe that the nation is blessed. We want, and they don't trust us because of the inquisition that happened 500 years ago, 600 years ago, 500 years ago. They're still paralyzed by that. The writings of Martin Luther, look at Martin Luther's writings and you can see the anti-Semitism in his writings and they're still affected by that in Israel. They're like, I don't know. And, and to the reverse, Christians are saying, oh, you know, these, these Jews would capture Christians and they grind them up and put them in their matzah balls. Where do you come up with this? And, and the animosity and the anger and you have two separated cultures that nobody can access because of of the distrust, all in God's name. And wars that have been fought in God's name that God had nothing to do with. Look at Ireland, Protestants and Catholics. It's just two cultures of people that despised one another and they, they snapped God's name on there. Devastating. This author says, in our time, there are unfortunately many examples of this. The evils committed by Islamists who torture, bomb, cut throats, and mass murder, all in the name of God. They do terrible damage to the name of God. It is not coincidental that what is called the new atheism, the immense eruption of atheist activism, followed the 9-11 attacks on America by Islamist terrorists. In fact, the most frequent argument against God and religion concerns evil committed in God's name, whether it is done in the name of Allah today or was done in the past in the name of Christ. So what you'll see is Islamist fundamentalists and Christian fundamentalists were all lumped into the same. And they, they go on to state all of the things that Islamist fundamentalists have done, 9-11. Yeah, but what about Christians? What's been done in the name of Christ? The Inquisition, the, the Crusades, the, the Salem witch trials. And after, at that point, they're like, er, they don't have much else to say. 
And I have to respond by saying the Inquisition was awful and the church should never have the sword, and I agree with you. The Crusades, their land was invaded. That was just, and we'll go through history and point that out. And you want to look at the Salem witch trials. Granted, in Europe, tens of thousands of people died, but in the United States, less than 30 died, and it was stopped by pastors who invoked our due process laws that we still have today that even Stephen Breyer on the Supreme Court points out that all of our due process laws came from Christians as a result of the Salem witch trials. So you can redefine it, but what's happened is they, in the name of God, they established this, and so everyone who worships God is lumped into the same aspect because you put on on that vile, evil act, the name of God. Allah be praised. God be praised. And, and I'll, I'll be candid. When we were at the National Day of Prayer Breakfast for the Y, uh, we had spokespeople from LDS, and we had uh, a Jewish spokesperson, and we had a, a Muslim a woman who spoke. And each one spoke, and they were kind to each other on this panel before I was asked to come up and speak. And uh, when, when the Muslim woman came up, she started to read from the Quran and she said, you know, Allah demands that we moderately love our enemies and we moderately love our friends because either can become the other. And I, I'm, as a Christian, I'm processing that through the mindset of moderate, moderate, like hold back, God sparing nothing. You know, he poured his life, laid it all on the line for God so loved Greater love has it moderately love your enemies, moderately love your friends, because either can become the other. And, and Allah is a God of peace. And, and, and I'm listening to this, and I'm thinking to myself, the, the, I could feel the entirety of the room. Everyone at that point was, there was just a sense of being uncomfortable. And it was an interesting tension in the room. And then, you, and I watched this as I stepped forward. The very first thing I began with was Ephesians 4, be kind to one another, put away wrath and malice, be tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And I could watch as the scripture says, his word does not return void. I could watch as that word was going forward. Lives were being profoundly touched just by the preaching of the word. We could have pressed a tape recorder and would have done the same thing. It was irrelevant that I was there. It went forward. And then I read the caustic words from the man who wrote me that letter. And then I read my response spoke about Abraham Lincoln and how he would receive these caustic letters and he would, he would write them but never sign them and send them and he'd wait on the Lord and then God would give him what to write and those are the ones that he mailed. And you see the contrast between the two. And, my, and, and when I read that, everyone clapped and I said, wait, time out. That's not me. That's the Lord. If I had written that letter, that guy would have been picking up his teeth with his broken arm. That's the only quote the acorn gave me. Thanks so much. But the idea is that our actions, if they're tied to the name of God, we have to be very careful because it is a reflection of a, it can be either an honoring of the third commandment or a violation of the third commandment. And we just can't do that. Now, when I read you earlier, the general orders of Washington on August 3rd, 1776, when he was dealing with this wicked practice, practice of profane cursing, um, last week we took a look as you shall make no carved images for yourself and how we remove God from the school system. And I showed you this. Ready for the slide? Back there. Is anybody awake? Can we hit that first slide? Sam, I saw you sleeping. So we looked at this. The, the minute we removed prayer from schools, uh, 1954, there was a precipitous decline in SAT scores. We sh saw an increase in all the other social barometers. Teen pregnancy went up. Teen drug abuse went up. Uh, all these things went up. SAT scores went down right at that point, and even with a recalibration. And the top one is the Christian schools. The bottom one are secular schools. And let's go to the next slide. The next slide. And let's go to the next slide. Can we go to the next slide? You got it, Sam? What are we doing, buddy? There we go. So um, Christian schools have a much higher SAT score than public schools, and yet they spend much less per student than public schools. In fact, their scores are still near the 1962 levels. It appears that teaching about God has a very positive impact on education. Let's go to the next slide. I wanted to show you this last week, and I forgot to. The only foundation for useful education in the Republic is to be laid in religion. Without this, there can be no virtue, and without virtue, there can be no liberty, and liberty is the object of life and of all Republican governments. We waste so much time and money and punishing crimes and take so little pains to prevent them. 
We profess to be Republicans, and yet, and by the way, that's not the party Republicans. It's a form of government. We profess to be Republicans, and yet we neglect the only means of establishing and perpetuating our Republican forms of government. That is the universal education of our youth in the principles of Christianity by means of the Bible. For this divine work, above all others, favors the equality among mankind that uh, that respect for just laws. That was written by Dr. Benjamin Rush, who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence and our first public school educator. Here's another one of his quotes. By removing the Bible from schools, we would be wasting so much time and money in punishing criminals and so little pains to prevent crime. Take the Bible out of our schools and there would be an explosion in crime. That was written in the 1700s. We took the Bible out in 1962, I think it was. And we watch the social barometers go through the roof. Let's show the next slide. Uh, this is George Washington, and this was January of 1776. It was a few months before he wrote the one that I read to you. The reflection upon my situation and that of this army produces many an uneasy hour when all around me are wrapped in sleep. Few people know the predicament we are in. He knew that they were going to get their, their rear ends kicked. If I shall be able to rise superior to these and many other difficulties which might be enumerated, I shall most religiously believe that the finger of providence or God is in it. George Washington knew the only way to win this war is by divine providence. There's no other way to beat this massive army. He had trained with the British. He knew how the British operated. He knew all the resources they had available. And by the end of 1776, this was January of 1776, by the end of January, of, uh, by December of 1776, the war was almost over. I've covered this. December of 1776, they were at Valley Forge. They were freezing to death. A third of his army was dying of dysentery. Another third didn't have boots. They had to wrap their feet in burlap sacks. And the remainder of the army, they marched 11 miles to Trenton in the worst snowstorm in the eastern seaboard. And, and all of the recruitments, all of the, the, the enlistments would be up January 1. The war would be over. And Washington knew, and he prayed, and he passed out uh, de, um, the American Crisis by Thomas Paine. These are the times that try men's souls, a summer soldier, and the sunshine patriot will in this season shrink from the duty of their country, but those who defend it now deserve the love and respect of all men and women. It motivated the remaining army. They marched the 11 miles, crossed the Delaware. On Christmas Eve, they attacked the Hessians. On Christmas Day, they secured a victory. Uh, the only people that died froze to death on the march, and that that turned the tide of the war. Conscriptions went up, and we're sitting here in a nation that has experienced almost 250 years of unequaled prosperity and peace. It's the longest surviving government on the face of the earth. That's pretty remarkable. Longest expansive freedom. Uh, let's take a look at the next. George Washington, July 2nd, 1776, two days before we declare ourselves to be an independent nation. Let us therefore rely upon the goodness of the cause, capital C, and the aid of supreme being in whose hands victory is to animate and encourage us to great noble actions. The eyes of all our countrymen are now upon us. His complete reliance upon the Lord and realizing that unless God does this, we are wasting our time. And this, this to invoke the, the, the soldiers, the officers in the army, do not violate the third commandment. We are not going to be on the wrong side of this. Blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord. We violate the third commandment as Christians and smack our name onto something that has nothing to do with him and invoke his name in such ways that don't honor him or reflect his character, we destroy the culture. Let's go to the next slide. This is Dennis Prager. I was sent this today by David Lane. I was fascinated by it. In a monologue considered witty by teenagers uh, in adult and teenagers in adult bodies and by those who hate President Trump, CBS late show host Stephen Colbert said about the president, the only thing your mouth is good for is being Vladimir Putin's blank holster. And you're turning into a real traitor. Witty, not to many of us. Let's go to the next slide. And not just not just not witty, obscene, which is particularly disturbing because it was broadcast on network, not cable television. But more than anything, it exemplified a trend in American life that one could only identify without any exaggeration as the unraveling of civil society. To anyone, liberal or conservative, who grew up watching Johnny Carson on late-night TV, the descent from Carson to Colbert is as breathtaking as it is heartbreaking. Along with virtually every other American, I never knew Johnny Carson's politics. I would not have been surprised if he was a liberal or surprised if he was a conservative, a Democrat, or a Republican. Next. 
In his 30 years as host of The Tonight Show on NBC, he never so much as hinted as to how he identified politically. He poked fun at whoever was in power, Republican or Democrat. The reason he didn't let on where he stood politically is that he believed that he had a much greater responsibility to offer Americans of all political persuasions an island of good-natured fun, a place where everyone could laugh together every night. And of course, it is inconceivable that he would have used the language Colbert used. Kids could watch The Tonight Show because he and we live in a pre-left age when grown-ups thought that they had a responsibility to be good models to the young people, in other words, to be adults, but the left has never been comfortable with growing up. Let's see if there's more. Yeah. Those who mock the Trump motto, make America great, who claim that they don't understand how anyone could think America was ever great, might begin to understand what many of us mean in at least this one way. Prior to the age of the left, in which we have increasingly lived since the mid-60s, there were places in America where Americans could enjoy life and enjoy one another without politics, not to mention hate-filled politics, such as Colbert's intruding. Prior to the age of the left, there were places in America where Americans could enjoy life and enjoy one another without politics, not to mention hate-filled politics, such as Colbert's intruding. Americans could watch sports events without athletes showing contempt for American flag, national anthem, without sportscasters or sports writers labeling as racist anyone who used the, the team name Redskins, without sports showing injection, injecting politics into their programming as ESPN does now so often that many sports fans no longer watch it. Their ratings have dropped. It was an American... It was an America where elementary teachers referred to their students as boys, and, as boys and girls today. Teachers in more and more states are directed not to use those terms as some six-year-old might not identify as a boy or a girl. It was an America where kids were proud of the American flag today in the age of the left. Students on a growing number of American campuses vote to have their flag removed from their campus because it symbolizes, in their view, not freedom and sacrifice, but slavery, oppression, imperialism, ideas put into their heads by leftist high school teachers and college professors. And it was an America in which Superman's self-proclaimed mission of truth, justice, and the American way a few years ago. However, Superman announced that he was renouncing his American citizenship to become a world citizen. One could list a hundred ways America was indeed great without ever ignoring serious moral flaws. Now one can list a hundred ways in which America has lost that greatness. The descent from Johnny Carson to Stephen Colbert is just one example, but is a powerful one. I think that's it. Oh, this is the last part. And it is one more result of perhaps the most important rule of life that life of the past hundred years in America and around the world, whatever the left touches, it ruins the universities, the news media, the entertainment media, the fine arts, the courts, the high schools and elementary schools, and coming soon, the preschools, as soon as the government funded and universal all ruined wherever leftism has achieved dominance. Now it is the turn of late night TV as embodied by Stephen Colbert, or as he himself put it in put it on election night on Showtime. I'm your host, Stephen Colbert. Let's go to the next one. Just as evil in God's name is atheism's best friend, goodness in God's name is theism's best friend. I think that's it. From the overflow of your mouth comes your words. And the way we treat one another is very dangerous. It's very dangerous. You, you see those things... And your blood boils, doesn't it? Some of you, some of you are going, well, I don't know if I agree with those politics. And some of you are going, that makes me so mad. And your response is derogatory. You want to give them a piece of your mind. Well, you're now part of the problem instead of the solution. Be kind and tenderhearted. Speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual praises, making melody in your heart one to another. Be kind to those who spitefully use you. Do good. We look at that and we want to have a war. And we, I'll tell you what, if that's your attitude here, I guarantee it's probably your attitude in your home. It's my way or the highway, and if I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. And we see one sin that exceeds another, and we, we want to ridicule that. And we make names and make fun of. And it's easy to do because they're wholly different than us. And, and the idea is, if we're going to smack our name onto the character and nature of God, I want to ask you this one question. Is it reflecting the nature and character of God, your actions and your words? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt with man. 
And as Christians, we are a temple of the Holy Spirit and he dwells within us. And we declare ourselves to be a Christian and we have the ecthus on our car or we have the not of this world symbol or whatever else or the God speak sticker or whatever it is that identifies us. And oftentimes we don't want to be labeled as a Christian. And, and here's one of my favorites. When people come up and go, are you like one of those televangelists with the funky hair and the comb over that smacks people with the Darth Vader sword? And, the, and we go, oh, that's not me. Because in a sense, you're, you're smacking, you're, you're putting on that action, the name of God. And there are some things that Christians do that I just look at and I go, really? I've known the Lord for almost 40 years, maybe more. No, about 40 years, 35 years, come to think of it. I've never seen him do that. I've never seen God beg for money. Never. I've never seen him manipulate the conscience to get the money out of someone's pocket. Never, not once. Never. He's never done that to me. I've never seen God deride with derogatory terms anyone. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He will call their sin, sin. He will point out that this is a reflection of your character. But he will never mock and ridicule another human being. And I I think... This is probably one of the most profound commandments because if we carry that name Christian, and and that's the idea, we carry it, we bear it. It is a mark upon our lives. And if we do it in emptiness and frivolity and vain repetition and stupidity and self-service, the Lord will not hold us guiltless. And the result is going to be a culture of destruction. When's it going to stop? You read that and it upsets you? And you want to say something derogatory about Stephen Colbert? I would say pray for him. And I would say reflect the opposite in all of your dealings. And watch what God does. A gentle answer turns away wrath. Be kind to one another. Put away wrath. Be gentle, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And watch what God does to a community. It's it's amazing how well we get along on the council. And not one person on that council has ever said anything derogatory towards me, even though ideologically they're opposed. To the contrary, one of my favorite people on that council is Claudia, Mayor Claudia Bill de la Pena. And she, she frequents the circles that vehemently vote against me and despise me. And she will not tolerate them to say derogatory things about me in her presence. Nor will I allow you to say anything about her or anyone else for that matter. That is a good standard to live by if we're going to carry the name of Christ. And you want to change the country? Carry the name worthy of the one you represent. Amen?